some of you know, uh, there is a, a special elite group within ELF that consists of only two people. And the, the way to uh, come into that group is to bear the name Keith Williams. <laughs> <laughs> so that's, we are really, this is the, our last session here, and we're really blessed because we have one uh, of the unique elite uh, teachers here, Keith Williams. Now it's, uh, it's important also to distinguish them, even though they have the same name. So today we welcome uh, Peter S. Williams. And uh, the other is, of course, Peter J. Williams. But today we are really happy we have Peter S. Williams uh, with us. Uh, so now we are turning to the more philosophical side. Pete has written a number of books. I'm highly impressed by the high quality of his books and the number of books he's already written uh, relating to a broad number of, of issues. And the theme for today is the waning of naturalism and the waxing. I didn't know what waxing meant, so I had to ask him. Uh, but I'm sure you, hopefully you are so clever, so you, you have already guessed it. The waxing of natural theology. Otherwise, I think Peter will make it clear. So, happy sure. to welcome Thank you. Peter Williams. <laughs> uh, waxing and waning are archaic uh, English terms for um, the phases of the moon, uh, for example. If it's uh, waxing, it is diminishing. Uh, it, it, sorry, if it's waning on the wane, it's diminishing. If it's waxing, it's increasing. Uh, so the waning of naturalism, the diminishing uh, or, or dying down of naturalism, and the waxing, uh, the increase, uh, not the polishing up, although you know, that would kind of work, uh, of natural theology. Um, I hope this will be a, a, a bit of uh, fun uh, to end uh, the course with, uh, but also uh, informative and encouraging. Uh, I have a sort of encouragement with this and uh, a word of warning as well. I'm going to look at a, a, a recent trend uh, in publications uh, that we uh, can and should, I think, exploit in our apologetics. Uh, this uh, trend is uh, problems with metaphysical naturalism or materialism as a worldview being recognised by atheist and agnostic writers. So, there is this uh, publishing trend of atheist and agnostic writers recognizing major problems with their a materialistic uh, worldview. Uh, and uh, that's interesting in and of itself, and it also provides us with uh, uh, useful ammunition uh, for one of my favorite rhetorical uh, strategies in apologetics, which is to quote from non Christian authorities in backing up uh, premises and the arguments uh, that I make. Uh, the kind of warning with this, though, is that the further this trend continues, if it does indeed continue to sort of gather momentum, um, the, war the more we apologists will need to engage with forms of atheism uh, that reject or modify naturalism or materialism, uh, as it is now conceived, um, which means that it's, uh, of course, not enough simply to have a negative apologetic against a materialistic worldview as if the only live options these days were going to be either materialism or 
belief in God or Christianity um, because uh, these uh, naturalists who are pointing out these problems uh, are not simply then, therefore, abandoning their naturalism and all becoming Christians. Uh, they're trying to either modify how naturalism is understood or they will uh, remain atheists but adopt some other worldview. Although atheism and materialism have tended historically to go hand in hand uh, in the European scene, they are, of course, not uh, synonymous or identical uh, with one another. So, uh, I should perhaps uh, say that there was my website, uh, uh, www.peterswilliams.com, mentioned on the, the screen there. If you go there, you can find a lot of free resources. I'm recording uh, this session and will, uh, as soon as I am back in the UK and have some time, put it up on my podcast channel uh, so you can get that. And, of course, we're recording it for the forum as well. Uh, and that will have to make up for the fact that I, I'm not able to make my slides available uh, to you afterwards before anyone asks. <laughs> so, <laughs> I'm driving you to my website. Uh, what is uh, naturalism? It is, of course, the dominant worldview in academia since the mid-20th century, which, when you think about it, actually it hasn't had dominance for all that long. Uh, it's interesting to note that within the world of contemporary philosophers, 49.8% uh, of contemporary philosophers, according to a recent survey, accept or lean towards naturalism. So actually within philosophy, it is, strictly speaking, a minority view. <laughs> <laughs> Just. Uh, but uh, perhaps within other fields in academia, uh, it is a majority view, and it's only within academia as a whole that seems to be the case. Um, if I were minded to phrase things tongue-in-cheek, let me stress, like uh, new atheists uh, do when they're talking about the Christian worldview, uh, I might say that uh, naturalism uh, is a worldview of a bunch of pre-scientific ancient Greek pastorals who didn't know anything about modern understanding of reality. Um, because, of course, materialism goes back to the pre-Socratic philosophers in about the 6th century BC. Um, but that would be uh, to speak as a fool, as St. Paul says. Uh, Julian Pagini, an uh, uh, atheist philosopher from the UK, says that naturalism is a belief that there's only the natural world and not any supernatural one. Fairly straightforward. To unpack it a little bit, you could say it's the belief that the fundamental reality is an uncreated, closed, physical system. And by physical, we understand an objective, uh, impersonal, and non-intentional uh, system of cause and effect behaving over time, according to the laws of physics. Uh, naturalism is often wedded to the faith that testing of scientific theories by empirical means is the only, or at least the best, means of knowing reality. That's, it often goes hand in hand with either strong or at least weak scientism. And I'm giving a talk in the afternoon workshops later today on scientism, uh, if that interests you. Atheist Alex Rosenberg, in his recent book, The Atheist's Guide to Reality, I think spells it out in a very clear-eyed manner from the materialist's uh, viewpoint. He says, is there a god? No. What is the nature of reality? What physics says it is? What is the purpose of the universe? There is none. What is the meaning of life? Ditto. Uh, why am I here? Just dumb luck. Is there a soul? Is it immortal? Are you kidding? Is there free will? Not a chance. What happens when we die? Everything pretty much goes on as before. Except us. 
<laughs> what is the difference between right and wrong, good and bad? There is no moral difference between them. Why should I be moral? Because it makes you feel better than being immoral. So is naturalism being eroded, somewhat like this uh, poor sandcastle here? Well, Gary Habermas, a few years ago, said that just as idealism as a worldview gave way to naturalism in the early 20th century, uh, around the time that C.S. Lewis was at university, uh, naturalism may now be losing its position of supremacy as a worldview. Uh, the American atheist Quentin Smith uh, in uh, a famous journal article called The Metaphilosophy of Naturalism, uh, it highlighted the influx of talented theists into philosophy departments in the United States and lamented uh, academia has now lost its mainstream secularization. If naturalism is the true worldview and a dark age means an age when the vast majority of philosophers and scientists do not know the true worldview, then we have to admit we're living in a dark age. Now, I think statistically, actually, he's probably wrong about that. Um, but it shows the perceived impact of the influx of theists, particularly into uh, philosophy uh, departments in the United States. And then recently, I came across this quote from uh, Sir Anthony Kenny, a famous agnostic British philosopher, uh, in the Times Literary Supplement in the course of uh, reviewing a book about C.S. Lewis, uh, he just dropped in this comment, which I thought was rather startling. He said, there are signs that naturalism is collapsing under its own weight. Uh, and this is a, a very prominent uh, guy in the UK, and that sort of caught my attention. And then just this year, uh, another famous atheist who uh, goes back to Oxford University from Lewis's day as well, uh, Mary Midgley, uh, published her book, Are You an Illusion? Uh, critiquing sort of reductive materialist explanations of humanity. And in that book, she says, uh, the materialist credo itself is already beginning to fray around the edges. And she's an atheist. To, to fray like a, 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 um, a coat that's become worn and it's unravelling um, around the edges. It's become worn and then the whole thing begins to, to unravel, fraying. Yeah. Of course, we're all well familiar with this publishing phenomenon of the, the new atheism. Uh, who condemn us just not belief in God, but respect for belief in God, and think that religion is, is evil, as well as intellectually mistaken, and so on. Uh, the Richard Dawkinses and Lawrence Krauss's and A.C. Grayling's of the world. But there's been a parallel publishing phenomenon, and these are all books from the last decade, published by atheist and agnostic writers, or in the first case of Anthony Flew's book, a, a former atheist turned theist, uh, in his book There is a God, Books like atheist philosopher of science Bradley Monton's book, Seeking God in Science, An Atheist Defends Intelligent Design, or Thomas Nagel's recent blockbusting Mind and Cosmos, why a uh, neo-Darwinian materialist concept of the, of the cosmos is almost certainly false. Um, Mary Midgley's Are You Religion? We've looked at Raymond Tallis's Aping Mankind, uh, arguing against uh, reductive Darwinian psychology kind of explanations of humans. Um, 
Jerry Fodor's uh, What Darwin Got Wrong, and so on. Uh, and this has been, I think, a, a growing trend. Scientism, just to look at that uh, briefly, more briefly than I will this afternoon, uh, is attributing exclusive uh, primary rights over knowledge to scientific empirical methodology, or at least that's strong uh, scientism. Uh, Stephen Hawking from The Grand Design, starting out his book saying, philosophy is dead. And it's now scientists who are the bearers of the torch of truth and the the quest for knowledge. Peter Atkins on being, I, I stand by my claim that the scientific method is the only means of discovering the nature of reality, the only way of acquiring reliable knowledge. The only good reason to believe that something exists is if there is real evidence that it does, and that always comes back to our senses, one way or another. A very hardline empiricism uh, from Richard Dawkins. Rosenberg again who actually embraces the term scientism and scientistic. He says, the methods of science are the only reliable way to secure knowledge of anything. Being scientific just means treating science as our exclusive guide to reality. We trust science as the only way to acquire knowledge. Three briefly put points against (coughs) that. The scientific demand that every rational belief must be justified by empirical evidence is of course self-contradictory because you just ask what is the empirical evidence that justifies that demand that demand also entails an infinite regress that can't be satisfied if I'm not rational in believing belief A unless I have evidence pointing to its truth call that B well neither would I be rational in believing that B is real genuine evidence that really does point towards A unless I had evidence that that were true, call that C, (laughs) D, E, F. I'm going to run out of letters uh, before we can satisfy the demand. Finally, it's open to just obvious counterexamples, one could say. And indeed, um, some neo-atheists know this. Here's Sam Harris in The End of Faith, and he says, the intuition denotes the most basic constituents of our faculty of understanding, Uh, When you can't break knowledge of a thing down any further, the irreducible leap that remains is intuitively taken. The traditional opposition between reason and intuition is a false one. Reason is itself intuitive to the core. Uh, Any judgment that a proposition is reasonable or logical relies on intuition to find its feet. Um, And in the moral landscape, he's trying to defend moral objectivism good, Uh, he's trying to defend it on a purely scientific basis epic fail Uh, but still uh, particularly since he explicitly contradicts his own thesis that science is all you need to justify belief in objective moral values because he says science cannot tell us why scientifically we should value human well-being And his whole thesis is that since human well-being is what morals and ethics are about, and human well-being and flourishing is something you can empirically measure, therefore science can deal with with ethics. But of course, only once he grants himself (laughs) the fundamental premise that human flourishing and well-being is a good thing that ought to be 
desired and pursued and so on. And he explicitly says in the book that science can't justify that starting assumption. Um, So science cannot determine human values. Uh, Still, uh, science is defined, he says, with reference to the goal of understanding that the processes of the universe. Can we justify this goal scientifically? Of course not. What evidence would prove that we should value evidence? So you see, he's recognising that there is a a sort of properly basic foundation to these uh, practices that science itself depends upon intuition and properly basic beliefs that cannot be justified by appealing to empirical evidence. His uh, atheist uh, political philosopher, Ronald Dworkin, Uh, on objective values versus naturalism in his recent uh, and last book, uh, Religion Without God. He says, the religious attitude rejects naturalism, which is one name for the very popular metaphysical theory that nothing exists that's neither matter nor mind. There's really fundamentally no such thing as a good life or cruelty or beauty on naturalism. But then he says... We find much in the natural world beautiful. To a naturalist, this beauty is just a matter of our reactions, our subjective reactions to these sights, the pleasure we take in them. To the religious attitude, they are discoveries of innate beauty. So this question is, is beauty just about our subjective reactions, or are our subjective reactions um, correct or incorrect according to the nature of the thing to which we're reacting? And then Dworkin says, still, we know that the sunset is beautiful. I would say, absolutely. And therefore, naturalism must be wrong. He's saying objective values don't fit a naturalistic worldview. And he's saying, we know that it is beautiful. It's not just a matter of our subjective preferences. So as, again, atheist Mary Midgley argues... uh, Physical science is not a separate supreme champion outclassing history or philosophy. Uh, It has no private line to reality. Anthony Flew, who's uh, uh, the paper that I uh, gave you uh, beforehand on Flew's uh, change of mind, he, uh, in an interview with Benjamin Weicker, said that two noted philosophers, one an agnostic, that was actually Anthony Kenny, and the other an atheist, turns out to be Thomas Nagel, recently pointed out that Dawkins has failed to address three major issues that ground the rational case for God. And those were the same issues that inspired uh, his change of mind. And those were the laws of nature, life with its uh, teleological organisation, and the the sheer existence uh, of the universe. Atheist philosopher of science Bradley Monton, although he remains an atheist, He says that an argument that starts from the fine-tuning of the fundamental constants, an argument based on the fact that the universe began to exist, uh, this is the sort of thing that uh, Greg was talking about in the uh, session last night, an argument based on the improbability, the naturalistic origin of life from non-life, are all somewhat plausible, he's prepared to admit. He thinks they have some weight, at least. Again, Monton says, if the universe had a beginning, then that lends support to the Kalan cosmological argument. But then a cosmologist like uh, atheist Alexander Vilenkin, a world-leading cosmologist, recently said, 
all the evidence we have says that the universe had a beginning. So you can see where the conjunction of those two statements from two atheist authorities would lead you. Um, the audience can't accuse you of quoting from a biased source in making your argument there. A uh, new scientist um, described uh, a conference held in honour of Stephen Hawking's 70th birthday. And it was at that conference that Alexander Vilenkin made that statement. And you can find on YouTube uh, a presentation that he gave uh, arguing that all of the ways of trying to avoid having a beginning of space-time had now failed. And this editorial in New Scientist, it's like the English equivalent of Scientific American or something, it's not exactly a bastion of fundamentalist religious uh, views. Uh, the editorial said the Big Bang is now part of the furniture of modern cosmology. Physicists have been fighting a rearguard action against it for decades, largely because of the theological overtones. Cosmologists thought they had a workaround. They've tried on various different models that dodged the need for a beginning, like, uh, okay, there was a beginning, but maybe there was a previous contraction and expansion and an oscillating universe model or something like this. But recent research has shot them full of holes. It now seems certain that the universe did have a beginning. Without an escape clause, physicists and philosophers must finally answer a problem that's been nagging at them for the best part of 50 years. How do you get a universe complete with the laws of physics out of nothing. <coughs> By which, of course, we have to mean nothing, nothing, not Lawrence Krauss, nothing. <laughs> um, well, think of it this way. The only way to get anything or to explain anything is to get it from something able to give it or to explain it with reference to something able to explain it. That just seems true by definition, doesn't it? Now, nothing means equals non-being. Okay? Again, true by definition. Uh, non-being can't do or give or explain anything because it isn't anything. Okay? So, you can't do anything or cause anything, explain anything. Now, also, no physical reality can explain the existence of all physical reality. Think about that. There's no physical reality that could possibly explain the existence of all physical reality. Because all physical reality includes any physical reality that you point at to try and ex explain all physical reality. And that itself we're trying to explain. Okay? Well, if you've eliminated non-being and physical being as an explanation of all physical being... The only remaining possibility is non-physical being. It really comes down to, does the universe require explanation or not? If it does, you can't appeal to physical being, you can't appeal to nothing. You have to appeal to a non-physical being with the ability, the capacities to explain and create that physical reality. So here's my favourite way of putting the Kalan cosmological argument. Premise one follows entailed directly by Big Bang cosmology. If there was a finite past, if the historical series of physical events is finite in the past, that directly entails there was a first physical event. 
It was the first physical event. And Vilenkin says all the evidence we have says the universe had a beginning. But surely, let's just appeal to experience again. Um, physical events are the kind of things that have causes. And, and Greg put this very well last night with his illustrations about the Big Bangs and the knocking at the door and so on. Physical events, by their nature, have causes. And you could defend that just in terms of, of experience or by in terms of analysing what kind of things physical things are and going down the whole... Well, physical things seem to be contingent realities that by their nature are contingent upon things outside of themselves. Now, at this point, many atheists want to bring up quantum mechanics as the rebuttal. So here's a very interesting quote from an atheist, a philosopher of science and physicist, David Albert. Um, he says, quantum field theoretical vacuum states uh, are particular arrangements of elementary physical stuff. The fact that some arrangements of, of the quantum fields happen to correspond to the existence of particles and some of those arrangements don't uh, is not a whit more mysterious than the fact that some of the possible arrangements of my fingers happen to correspond to fists and that some don't. And the fact that particles can pop in and out of existence over time from the rearrangement of the quantum fields in quantum mechanics is not a whit more mysterious than the fact that fists can pop in and out of existence as my fingers rearrange themselves. And none of these poppings amount to anything even remotely in the neighbourhood of creation from nothing. It is creation of a physical particle from the rearrangement of a physical reality described by the laws of quantum mechanics, which is very much a something and not a nothing. Atheist Raymond Tallis says that recent attempts to explain how the universe came out of nothing rely on questionable notions such as spontaneous fluctuations in the quantum vacuum, the notion of gravity as negative energy, the inexplicable free gift of the laws of nature waiting in the wings for the moment of creation somehow as if the laws just exist independently as some sort of platonic object that nevertheless has causal power. Um, he says, these ideas reveal conceptual confusion beneath mathematical sophistication. And the mathematical sophistication is like uh, Peter Atkins saying, well, because when you do the sum, uh, the positive and the negative energy of different uh, fundamental forces in the universe uh, sum to zero, therefore, he actually says, therefore nothing exists. What exists is an apparently interesting rearrangement of nothing. <laughs> it's just playing around with the ambiguity of term terminology. It's like saying, if I had two bank accounts, I have two bank accounts. And in one of those bank accounts, I have 100 euros. And my other bank account is 100, pound, 100 euros in debt. So the sum of my two bank accounts is zero euros. So I don't have any euros. But hang on, can't I go up to my bank account that's got 100 euros in and ask the teller to give me 50 euros and go down a shop and buy a pair of shoes? <laughs> 
Because so that just the fact that two things sum to zero doesn't mean that the two things that sum to th- zero are no things. He's just playing around with language. So there was a first physical event. Every physical event requires a cause. Therefore, the first physical event had a cause. Now, here's where it gets interesting. Let's carry that forward into a second little chunk of argument. The cause of the first physical event can't have been a physical cause. What did you say? What caused the first physical event? Oh, it was the previous physical event. That makes no sense at all. We're talking about the first physical event having a cause. It can't have been caused by anything physical. It's the first physical (laughs) event that there is. Which directly implies that the first physical event must have had a non-physical cause. Which shows that materialism is false. And a little bit more elaboration of the argument will get you further characteristics of, as Greg put it last night, the G word. You know. uh, and what about the, uh, the nature of that universe, the structure that it has? Mary Midgley again, our current belief in our evolutionary origin calls for matter to take over the burden of creation. The physical difficulties facing this enterprise seem bad enough. The remarkable degree of order in the world that so surprisingly makes science possible and gives rise to the idea of a unifying purpose. And she doesn't take that back. She doesn't really capitalise on it very much. But they're interesting statements from Mary Midgley. Um, Someone who enters a sequence of numbers into a cash machine and then it gives them money, were they, A, lucky? Or B, did they get the money by design? Um, Odds on, they got it by design. Um, That is, when a a complex event matches an independently given functionally specified pattern, we infer design. It's not just the fact that an unlikely unlikely sequence of numbers has been entered. I mean, any four-digit PIN number that you entered is just as unlikely as any other number. Okay. But that they entered a pin number and got the money. That the one pin number that they entered should just happen to be the pin number that is pre-specified as the only four-digit number that will allow them access to the money. It's that that triggers our intuitive sense that, ah, that's not just luck, that's design. And the fine-tuning of the universe, which again, Greg talked about briefly last night, is, um, is that kind of complexity. It's not even analogous to that kind of complexity. It is that kind of complexity, uh, or specified complexity. The fine-tuned nature of the cosmos is the only argument that's worth making if you're a theist, in my opinion. The only one. Um, because it is pretty peculiar that the laws of nature construct in such a way, not just that you and I can be here, that, that anyone can be here, that, that, that it would even be atoms, therefore, that there could be planets and stars and so on. Okay, well, that's, that's, that's a legitimate mystery. Says Michael Shermer, head of the Skeptics Society. Again, interesting quote. This is a clip uh, from Ian Morris's The God Question uh, documentary series, uh, just to advertise that again. Um, <laughs> 
Bill Craig puts the fine-tuning argument like this, and let's do a little interaction with Stephen Hawking's recent book uh, on this argument. Um, he says, the fine-tuning of the universe is due to either physical necessity, it had to be that way, or chance, we got lucky, or design. It's not due to physical necessity or chance, we can eliminate those possibilities, uh, we can then rule in, therefore, it's due to design. Now, Stephen Hawking in The Grand Design says that it appears that the fundamental numbers, even that the form of the apparent laws of nature, are not demanded by logic or physical principle. So Stephen Hawking would agree with Craig that we can rule out the physical necessity option here. So it didn't have to be that way. Which leaves us with only chance or design. But how do we adjudicate that decision? Craig appeals to, again, uh, this specified complexity criterion as developed by folks like uh, William Dembski. And he gives the, the lovely example of, uh, in a poker game, any deal of cards is equally and highly improbable. It's one possible arrangement of cards of that length out of all the possible arrangements of cards of that length. Same improbability. But if you find that every time a certain player deals, he gets all four aces, <laughs> you can bet that this is not the result of chance, but of design. And were that player to be a cowboy in Dodge City and the other cowboys pull their six shooters on him and accuse him of being a cheat environment, and he says, hey, guys, what are you getting your knickers in a twist about? Put your six shooters away. I'm just very lucky. <laughs> After all, any deal of cards is just as unlikely as any other. <laughs> Craig says, uh, you know, that is not going to play well in Dodge City. <laughs> Hawking again, for, for our theoretical models of the Big Bang to work, of inflation to work, the initial state of the universe had to be set up in, note this, a very special and highly improbable way. What he's saying is the fine-tuning of the universe exhibits specified complexity, or at least appears to. But if things exhibiting specified complexity are properly designed, and the universe had to be set up in a very special and highly improbable, specifically complex way, it follows that the fine-tuning was probably the result of design. Which is, in other words, we've used that fine-tuning criteria to help us rule out chance in the adjudication of the is it chance or is it design question left after we ruled out physical necessity. So, how does Hawking object? The main objection that comes is this. Okay, if there were enough different universes, then the, the, the specified fine-tuning of our universe wouldn't be complex, wouldn't be unlikely enough to justify a design inference. Yes, it hits the pattern of allowing life to exist. But if, you've got, if you give yourself more throws of the dice... Give yourself more and more throws of the dice, more and more deals of the cards, until it becomes probable that you're going to, just by luck, hit that pattern. So, 
Although the universe looks like it's an example of specified complexity, Hawking then says, but what if it's just specified but not complex as it appears to be? And that would be the case if there were lots and lots and lots and lots and lots and lots and lots of other universes that all, for some reason, happen to have differently tuned sets of laws. Well, in order to get to the conclusion that therefore the fine-tuning of our universe doesn't justify, or the apparent fine-tuning of our universe doesn't justify a design inference, the, the, the bridging premise, if you like, is of course the assumption that there are, in fact, enough other differently tuned universes. It's a bit like saying, look, faced with the works of William Shakespeare, um, if enough chimps with enough typewriters existed, uh, working away in their little offices for long enough, then they could type Shakespeare's complete works by chance. Okay? But surely anyone faced with this uh, many chimps hypothesis uh, for an actual explanation, an alternative explanation for the works of Shakespeare to the one author explanation. Um, they're going to ask whether there's sufficient independent reason to think that X number of chimps with X number of typewriters working away for X number of years actually exist. And absent such evidence for this chimpy typing pool, <laughs> they're surely going to reasonably ignore the chimp hypothesis in favour of the one author hypothesis. Well, isn't that directly parallel to the, the fine-tuning uh, debate. Atheist Bradley Monton. Uh, he says, in the case of a spatio-temporally isolated multiple universes, it's unclear how we could have any evidence whatsoever for the existence of those universes. And this is a cheeky thing. He says, apart from divine revelation. <laughs> it's great, isn't it? And, and as for connected universes, where you may say, well, maybe the universe is a lot bigger than we think it is, and different regions of it have different laws somehow. Um, so that in principle, at least, you could get evidence of these other regions, because they're connected to our reality. Um, you have to ask yourself, how do we get the whole physical reality that would allow one universe to produce another, or bubble universes to pop into existence with different laws and so on? Would there not be improbable fine-tuning associated with the existence of these physical realities as well? I.e. in a scientific theory that's generating multiple differently tuned spaces of some kind, there has to be a material mechanism that happens to have the result that you get lots of differently tuned universes rather than, you know, just thousands of the identical universes which are not fine-tuned for life. <laughs> Say, so, why is it this way rather than that way? Being this way would seem to be an example of specified complexity. You've just pushed the ruckle in the carpet along one. You're not really addressing the ultimate issue. Agnostic cosmologist Paul Davis says, like the proverbial bump in the carpet, the popular multiverse models merely shift the problem elsewhere, up a level from the universe to the multiverse. There has to be a universe-generating mechanism, and you can ask, you know, does that point to design, and anyway, why is there anything physical at all? And 
the, the theorems about the universe having a beginning applies, by the way, to the multiverse. <laughs> and what about the origin and diversity of life? Midgley. Increasing difficulties about matters like the origin of life. She just tosses in this comment. She says, the idea of natural selection, which is usually called into account for this vast creative surge, is already looking increasingly inadequate to explain evolution. So note that you know, evolution means various different things. One of the things it means is you know, changing diversity over time from relatively simple to more complex forms of life. But one of the things it means is the mechanism you invoke to explain, to drive that process of diversity. She's saying that the, the mechanism invoked to explain the diversity is looking increasingly inadequate. Natural selection is only a filter, and filters don't provide the taste of the coffee that pours through them. Uh, the range of evolutionary alternatives between which natural selection takes place has to be there already in matter and expressing itself. And she says how it comes to be present there, how that possibility of all that diversity to be selected comes to be there, is the real mystery about creation. Agnostic James uh, Le Fanu says there's more than enough evidence already to suspect that Darwin was less right than is commonly perceived. And get this one, atheists, Joey Fodor and Massimo Pietali Palomerini, if I've got that right, uh, this is in their book, What Darwin Got Wrong. They say this. Darwin's theory of natural selection is fatally flawed. We don't know what the mechanism of evolution is. As far as we can make out, nobody knows exactly how phenotypes, different types of body plan, evolve. Thomas Nagel in Mind and Cosmos. The dominant scientific consensus on evolution faces problems of probability that I believe are not taken seriously enough, both with respect to the evolution of life forms through accidental mutation and natural selection, and with respect to the formation from dead matter of life, of physical systems capable of undergoing evolution. The more we learn about the intricacy of the genetic code and so on, the harder those problems seem. The coming into existence of the genetic code in particular seems particularly resistant to being revealed as probable given a physical law alone. Flew, in his interview with Weicker, said the more that was discovered about the richness and inherent intelligence of life, the less it seemed likely that a chemical suit could magically generate the genetic code. The difference between life and non-life was, was ontological and not merely chemical. It's about the kind of complexity that you're trying to explain here. And he points to um, he says, the best confirmation of this radical gulf is Dawkins' comical effort to argue in The God Delusion that the origin of life can be attributed to lucky chance. If that's the best argument you have, then the game is over. Now, whatever processes are involved in that, the moment we see text with meaning, and it's a code, remember, we call it that, we infer upwards to intelligence constructing. You're seeing in nature things that we know only arise from intelligent activity, not from any natural process we know, but things that do arise we know from intelligent activity, like digital code. 
Sermeyer in his excellent book, uh, The Signature in the Cell. It's on the bookstall here. I highly recommend it. I think it's the best thing written on the origin of life issue. Uh, and the second best thing, I would say, is um, uh, Fosrana's uh, Origin of Life book as well, which is also on the bookstall. Uh, but Mayer points out that he uh, uses the same scientific methodology as Charles Darwin to arrive at the opposite conclusion based upon knowledge that we now have about the genetic code and so on that, of course, Charles Darwin didn't have back then. But he uses the same methodology of, of, of argument to the best explanation, of trying to explain data in terms of currently acting forces or phenomenon that we know are capable of explaining the thing in question. And he says, the only thing that we know of that's capable of explaining the origin of large amounts of functional information from scratch is intelligence. Uh, very interesting stuff. So again, it's an application of, of specified complexity in a sense, uh, but to uh, the fine-tuning, if you like, of the code of life and where did that first code come from. Even if you've then got something and you're quite happy to say, then once you've got something capable of diver diversifying with mutation and therefore undergoing natural selection and evolving and so on, but how do you get that in the first place? Um, it has to actually contain... You know, it's not simple, it's only relatively simple compared to the rest of life. It's actually a huge amount of functional information. Bradley Monton. Intelligent design arguments, he says, need to be taken more seriously than a lot of its opponents are willing to do. The arguments do have some force. They make me less certain of my atheism than I would be had I not heard the arguments. I think there is some evidence for an intelligent designer. And in fact, I think there's some evidence that the intelligent designer is God. <laughs> Last big issue, and then several of the groups, the science group and the philosophers group yesterday, were looking at this issue of mind. And with publications of books like Oxford University Press's The Waning of Materialism, um, see where I got my title from, The Waning of Materialism or After Physicalism, uh, The Soul Hypothesis, J.P. Moreland's recent writings on the, uh, the, the soul and the argument for God from the existence of non-physical souls. Michael Roos, agnostic philosopher of science, very recently said this, I don't think a naturalistic account of the mind-body problem has been offered, and I'm frankly doubtful as to whether one could be offered. And I view this as a, it's a failure to rebut the prima facie case for, for dualism. The burden of proof is actually on the naturalist, on the sceptic here, of the existence of mind that is not the same thing as or reducible to matter. And the leading voices in the field of consciousness research, whether from uh, the scientific side or the, uh, the philosoph philosophical side, uh, openly admit that we do not know, we cannot explain the so-called hard problem of consciousness. Why is there such a thing as consciousness? How do you explain the redness of being appeared to redly, as philosophers like to say, um, is uh, completely stymieing attempts to describe mind in purely material, physical, naturalistic terms. John Hill says that dissatisfaction with materialist assumptions has led to a revival of interest in forms of dualism. A recent survey of philosophers 
indicated that, well, okay, 56.4% accepted or leaned towards physicalism, but 27% accepted or leaned towards non-physicalist views of mind, and that is a growing minority, and a, quite a substantial growing minority in, in, in the field. Um, there's a reversal of direction of travel within thinking on this matter. Uh, Keynes and Beeler's uh, book, The Waning of Materialism, uh, materialism's waning, uh, an ever-growing number of major philosophers who reject materialism or have strong sympathies with anti-materialistic views. Um, a growing number of prominent philosophers who once had strong materialist sympathies have come to the conclusion at least some of the arguments against materialism cannot be overcome. For example, Thomas Nagel says... Uh, Conscious subjects and their mental lives are inescapable components of reality. So he's against the eliminatives like Daniel Dennett who want to say the fact that you are conscious is an illusion. <laughs> to which the question is, who is suffering the illusion? Okay, that's a, uh, is an illusion. <laughs> he says it's inescapable that there is conscious uh, uh, mental lives. And he says those conscious mental lives are not describable by the physical sciences. Mary Midgley again. The materialist credo rules that thoughts, not being physical, can't cause physical events. Even if you're the kind of naturalist who says, okay, maybe there's a sort of epiphenomenon of mind generated by the physical. At the very least, it's not something that has any effect on the world. It's not going to give you free will or you know, any kind of interaction. We, want this we have this closed physical system in naturalism cannot cause physical events. And as we know from every activity of our lives that thoughts actually can and do affect those events, she says, this doctrine puts materialism into a radical conflict with reality, is bumping into reality. The prima facie appearance is that we think and will and do things and our thoughts have effects upon the material world. And the materialists self-admittedly say we have no alternative explanation of that in purely material terms. What about the, the argument from reason, the, the possibility of consciousness giving us the possibility of rationality? Nagel says um, evolutionary naturalism provides an account of our, our thinking capacities, our cognitive capacities that undermines their reliability and in doing so undermines itself. Uh, if you know Alvin Plantinga's work on the, the evolutionary anti-naturalism argument, here is an atheist philosopher of mind agreeing with Alvin Plantinga, basically. Um, Sam Harris, uh, just a comment from him, he doesn't seem to realise where this goes, but he just chucks out this comment our logical, mathematical, and physical intuitions cannot be designed by natural selection to track the truth. Well then, how come you're so confident about <laughs> the truth of naturalism, for example? Um, Rosenberg says, Mother Nature built our minds for other purposes than understanding reality. And yet he calls his book, the, you know, The Atheist's Guide to Reality. <laughs> where we rely upon the scientific method to tell us the truth about... You know. Churchland, the principal chore of the nervous system is to get body parts where they should be in order that the organism may survive. 
Truth, and she says, whatever that is, uh, definitely takes the hindmost on a materialist account of mind. But if truth takes the hindmost on naturalism, how can naturalists be confident about the truth of naturalism? And Nagel, in his book The Last Word, which I highly recommend again, even ends up saying this. The reliance we put on reason implies a belief that the basic methods of reasoning we employ are not merely human, but belong to a more general category of mind. Oh, he's so close to C.S. Lewis's argument from reason there. Thank you. Now, at each point of explanatory failure, being admitted by leading atheist and agnostic philosophers and scientists today, each point of explanatory failure for naturalism, I would say, grounds the possibility of positive arguments for theism. It's not just an argument from ignorance. Oh, we don't understand how life came about, therefore God did it. And that's an argument from ignorance which is invalid because it's only got one premise, the observation, oh, we don't understand this, and the conclusion, therefore God did it. You need an in-principle motivating premise there to justify moving from the data to the conclusion. But we we have that. We have the the specified complexity criterion. Or or, or reasoning about uh, causation when you're looking at the beginning of the universe. uh, And so on. Uh, These are not arguments from ignorance to be made from the explanatory failures of naturalism. There are are robust positive arguments to be made. But it isn't half interesting to see in the last decade such writers as as, um, Thomas Nagel uh, and... Mary Midgley and Jerry Fodor and so on uh, openly expressing um, doubts about major planks in the naturalistic worldview. Uh, and I, I suggest to you a, a good rhetorical strategy in uh, apologetics uh, is to quote from such sources in defense of premises and the arguments that we make uh, to show people, you know, this is not just the view of this area taken by biased theist thinkers. Now, of course, to, say, to make that kind of objection to quoting a theist, sort of ad hominem and so on, but it avoids that whole issue. Uh, and I, it's quite nice. I mean, sometimes I do talks, for example, defending the moral argument for God only by quoting from atheists. It's just that there are some atheists who defend the premise that there really are objective moral values. Um, some excellent writing on this by a, a British philosopher called Ruth, Russ Schaefer-Landau, who's an atheist who does a really good job at defending objective moral values. He just says, I don't think that implies there's a God. And there I think he's weak. <laughs> but there are other atheists who, 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 who see that connection and, and reject, say, you know, if there were objective moral values, that would be evidence for God, say people like J.L. Mackey. You know. So you can defend the moral argument just by quoting from atheists. It's just that they both have to be kind of half wrong and half right <laughs> in their way of thinking about the field. Um, but if, if they're half right in the, in the correct ways, both of them, then they're fundamentally wrong <laughs> about their worldview. 
uh, and I, I think that's a, a neat way of presenting things sometimes. Anyway, I'll stop there so that we do have a, a little time, uh, perhaps for a few questions, and I'll hang around, and I know you've got to do some form filling and things as well. So uh, thank you for bearing with me, and I, I hope that was uh, inspiring and fun. seems like more Christians who are denying dualism mm. and uh, saying, well, you know, science has kind of, in a sense, almost kind of shown that yeah. we don't need dualism, and that was just kind of like a leftover from Plato anyways, and that's why, you mm. know, mm. where this whole dualistic view of everything Christian theology came from. Can you respond to that? Yeah, I, I think you're correct to say that there is, is an increasing movement in, of some Christians who are, are, are physicalists about people. They're not materialists about reality, but they are physicalists about people. And it's certainly possible to say, no, I believe in God, and so when he created a world that's just purely material, and that includes people, and, and so on. I think it raises problem for certain biblical passage interpretation, uh, you know, what do you do about the, the intermediate state? What do you do about Jesus saying, you know, fear him who has the power to destroy not just the body, but also the soul? Um, what do you do about uh, your interpretation of passages about the existence of angels and demons? If you're taking a physicalist approach to, to people, um, that can sometimes be an interesting issue. Um, I think it's still, a, you know, it's still a, definitely a minority of, of theologians and so on who take this approach, but it, it does seem to be a kind of growing thing. And yeah, and I think the motivation is, you know, this sort of whole science has now shown, and so we have to bend our interpretation to, to fit, just as we did, as we do sometimes rightly. You know, Copernicus shows the, the earth goes around the sun. And so we no longer interpret the, the Bible when it says, you know, the earth is established and it shall not be moved. And none of us go, oh, good grief, you know, the heliocentric model's now been proven. We should all give up being Christians. <laughs> We've gone, oh, okay, perhaps our understanding of that particular biblical passage was, was wrong. So in principle, there's nothing wrong with that, but the, the devil is in the detail, as it were. And wouldn't it be really ironic, uh, you know, if theologians and so on are bending to, um, oh, well, we have to kind of take that approach because science has shown, and now it's not at all reasonable to hold a dualist view of people at the very moment, when in the philosophy of mind, philosophers are saying, oh, we've completely hit a brick wall with this whole trying to explain people just in material terms thing, and we need to return to thinking about dualism. <laughs> yeah. Um, I've been reading the book by Lennox, uh, God's Undertaker, and he goes into mm. fine-tuning, mm. and there was one of the things that he was mentioning I didn't fully understand about fine-tuning, where he ended up with a probability of one to the power of 10 to the power of 100. Right, yeah, yeah, yeah. With the wavelength or something? Ah, okay, well, I, I, so it's a question about some of the specifics of uh, the large numbers, the improbabilities calculated in the fine-tuning argument. Now, I, I, here I have to say, I, I am not a scientist or a mathematician. I, I am as dependent uh, as you are upon reading the works of the scientists and the mathematicians in the field. And again, a point that I make of doing that is to, is to read non-theistic sources on that as well. Um, so um, Barrow and Tipler and uh, Martin Reeves, uh, the former uh, the astronomer royal in, in the UK and so on, who's an um, atheist or agnostic. Um, and certainly, um, 
the numbers that they give are, are huge and the multiplication of those numbers together are even more huge uh, and they are you know, beyond, literally beyond astronomical numbers. Um, you can, I think, get a, 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 a basic kind of feeling for the thing by sort of saying, um, look, I, I, I rule in design when someone punches four numbers into a cash-in-the-wall machine and gets their money out, and these numbers that the scientists talk about in terms of the fine-tuning of the cosmos are way beyond the size of those uh, kind of numbers, uh, such that in order to make it not unlikely by chance, you'd have to have invoke huge numbers of universes. And indeed, um, I, I've, I've even read it said that, that some... Um, uh, people will appeal to um, string theory, uh, which allows for the possibility of uh, something like 10 to the 500 mathematically consistent possible universes within string theory. It's not, say, actual, but possible universes, 10 to the 500. And actually, some thinkers say, well, even if that were true, and even if all of those universes were actual, that still wouldn't be enough <laughs> to outbalance the numbers calculated from the fine-tuning of, of, of the cosmos. Um, so that's, that's an interesting point. Yeah. So, you know, saying, one person saying, you know, we don't use, I'm a scientist and we use certain criteria in my discipline uh, and rejecting arguments from, uh, coming from an area of another discipline by saying, well, you, you know, we use different criteria than you do, without sort of raising the, the meta question, the philosophy of science question of maybe there's a reason why they use different criteria. Maybe certain criteria are more uh, apropos, more relative to certain areas of study and so on. And I think that's one of the the values of a little bit of philosophical training, I come to you as, before you as a philosopher, um, that philosophy, because it's interested in uh, the integrative project, it's interested in asking questions like, well, what is the nature of science and so on? What is the nature of art? What is this, that, 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 that. It's interested in all of the disciplines and taking kind of overview of that, um, that it doesn't uh, lead you to such a sort of myopia on everybody else has to sort of do things the way that we do in this discipline. It's a bit like scientism, isn't it? Saying the only way to know anything reliably is through this methodology and actually recognising that, you know, actually we, we need a plurality of methodologies in order to really deal with reality. Uh, but I see that my time is up, uh, but I'll hang around for further questions if you want to. Thank you. Thank you very much.